We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses, chapter 3, sorry, verses 13 through 17. <laughs> then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I would need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he contested. contested. When Jesus, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you for those of you who lead us in worship every week, who read God's word for us. And we're just so thankful uh, to have a church of folks that are involved and engaged in the worship of God. I want you to imagine something. As we, uh, before we dive into the service, I want you to imagine the bright lights, the screaming fans, the great fear and exhilaration of the game you're about to play in front of an audience of people. You look around and you see your team and you see that you're all sharing the same jersey together and you realize in that moment you are a part of something greater than yourself. The jersey doesn't get you on the team because there's fans in the stand that have jerseys on. But friends, it is a symbol of your identity on the team. It matters. It stands for your relationship to the others there. And when you lose the game, when you get discouraged, when you want to quit, you look at the jersey and it is meant to remind you why you do what you do. Friends, baptism is, in many ways, the jersey for Team Jesus. It is the jersey, so to speak, of the Christian life. Rather than being something we wear, it is a one-time event that we're meant to look back to regularly to remind us of the Savior we're united to, of the local church we belong to, and of the calling Jesus has given to us. But sadly, there is much confusion in our day, even in churches, about baptism and its role in the Christian life. We're going to look at a lot of passages today. If you saw your notes, you're probably like, we're never going to get out of here. We are going to get out of here. We're going to fly together. And, but Matthew chapter 3 that Sean read for us is going to be sort of home base of sorts. We're going to keep coming back and seeing how this text is so definitional for us. It's one of the most popular about baptism, and it's going to be where we begin as we think about taking a deep dive on baptism. But before we can ever begin to think about this passage in Matthew chapter 3, we need to realize that that isn't where baptism starts. In fact, baptism is foreshadowed and practiced even in the Old Testament. So let's start first with baptism in the Old Testament. Let's think about baptism in the Old Testament. And the first thing we're told is that Noah's flood foreshadowed baptism. But you can probably sit there and go, well, of course, Matt, there was a lot of water, (laughs) right? That seems to be a parallel there. But the people, there wasn't just the fact that there was a lot of water, but the people of God, Noah and his family, passed through the waters of death to life on the other side. Look what Peter had to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 21. He said this, baptism, which corresponds to this, and if you look in the, in the context, this is the flood, now saves you not by the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he wants us to know water did nothing for Noah. The water actually was dangerous to Noah. But what saved Noah was the ark he entered into and his trusting God through the waters. It displayed Noah's faith in God, and he and his entire family went through the flood, and everything under the flood died, but he and his family had a sort of resurrection, so to speak, and came out the other side alive and in new life. The flood foretold of baptism. We see, second, that the parting of the Red Sea foreshadowed baptism. The Red Sea foreshadowed baptism. Look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and see it, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He wants us to see that Israel and Moses passed through the Red Sea. They passed through the waters of death and came out the other side to new life. Think about it. The waters were of no help to the pagan Egyptians, right? In fact, those came down upon them and destroyed them. But it brought the people of God through death to life on the other side. And third and finally, we see that the washings of priests foreshadowed baptism. You can go home if you're really interested in this and dig in to the end of the book of Exodus and into the book of Leviticus, and you'll see that the priest had several washings that they had to do to prepare themselves for their roles. They had to take a number of baths before they could do their role, particularly every year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 says that the priests would bathe themselves in order to set themselves apart for the ministry of priesthood. And that the bath wasn't what mattered. It was the, the repentance and commitment to God that came alongside it. And in this context, one guy named John the Baptist came onto the scene. He was baptizing, and look what accompanied his ministry. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You see it? He says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. He said the way to prepare themselves was to confess their sins, to be washed, and to prepare for a new and better priesthood what the New Testament would call the priesthood of all believers. Did you know that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, the Bible says you are a priest? And you have better access to God than the priests of the Old Testament did. You have a greater calling to serve Him than they did. In fact, Peter would write in 1 Peter 2, 9, that all believers are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's possession. 
And so those who came to be baptized by John confessed their sins and prepared for a priestly role, just like those in the Old Testament did. And then one day, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And there we learn quite a few important lessons about baptism. So we move from the baptism in the Old Testament to the baptism of Jesus. Let's think together about the baptism of Jesus. The first thing that should stand out to us is that Jesus is being baptized at all. (laughs) You're kind of like, what? Why? You're probably asking, I would have asked the same question John was asking. Why are you asking me? You're the Son of God. You shouldn't need to be baptized. You have no sin to repent of. And notice what happens. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him. Could you imagine? We look back now and we are like, John told Jesus no. And But many of us might have been in the, same, uh, in the same boat. But John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John was like, Really, Jesus, I've been preaching this whole time that you were going to come and you were going to give a baptism of the Spirit and a fire, and now you're asking me to baptize you? And Jesus says he comes to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? This means at least three things. Here's one of the points. Here's, here's what Jesus wants us to see, that Jesus wasn't baptized to reject the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. He didn't come in order to say, hey, everything that came before me, throw it away. He came to say, hey, all of that that came before me points toward me. Jesus knew about the flood. He knew about the Red Sea. And he knew even about the baptism of the priests. And he says, hey, I came to fulfill all that the Old Testament foretold. Jesus says, hey, I will be the ark that will save you from God's judgment. I will be the new and better Moses who will lead you through the wilderness to the promised land. And I will be the perfect high priest who will lay down my life as a sacrifice. He's telling us that the baptism of Jesus really marks his ministry, the beginning of his ministry. In fact, just in the very next chapter, we'll see that after his wilderness temptation, Jesus will begin his ministry by preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And telling us that he fulfills all of this, Matthew's really doing something incredible in his gospel. So I just want to show you this. I want you to take a, a step back and think about what Matthew has been doing through this gospel. This is really, this is really cool. Matthew chapter 1, you can flip back over there and just kind of gaze over the page and look and see that it opens with Jesus' family tree. And it shows us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the Savior. We then see a miraculous birth story that's very Moses-like. Herod was very much like Pharaoh, who desired to kill all the baby boys and the Savior. And what's so interesting is Jesus is saved just like Moses was by being taken into Egypt. We then see Jesus' baptism, and he comes through the water, and he heads straight into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. 
Just like the nation of Israel passed through the Red Sea and entered into the wilderness of temptation for 40 years. But unlike Israel, friends, the good news is Jesus would stand firm against those temptations. He would stand firm and hold fast to the word of God. And then we have Matthew chapter 5 to 7, where Jesus goes up on a mountain, preaches what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks all about the law and how he fulfilled the law. Jesus has gone through water, gone into the wilderness, and gone up on a mountain. You know where else God had his people do all of that? Well, the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, they went through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and on up in to Sinai. Here's the point. Jesus, by his baptism, is fulfilling the story of Israel and the story of the Old Testament. And that's when he says he's fulfilling all righteousness. He's telling us that all of that was about him. He says he's the central point in the story. It's all about him. This wasn't some brand new thing. It was the next step in a long history God was writing. Jesus wasn't baptized to reject the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. We see, second, that Jesus wasn't baptized to repent of his sins, but to save us from our sins. He wasn't here repenting of his sins, but he was doing this in order to fulfill all righteousness so that he could be our Savior. He could be the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was preparing himself to die in order to forgive our sins. We often talk about the death of Jesus, and we should, but think about this. The death of Jesus would be worthless without the perfect, sinless life of Jesus, where he fulfilled what none of us ever could. He lived for 30-plus years without sin and fulfilled righteousness, and in turn, he was beginning a journey to the cross and an empty tomb to save us from our sins. And look what happens After Jesus is baptized, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Look at this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here's the point. Jesus wasn't baptized to become the Son of God, but to declare to the world he was the Son of God. He wasn't baptized in order to become something he wasn't, but he was declaring who he was. Jesus comes out of the water, and we see the beautiful doctrine of the Trinity shown to us, the Father speaking from heaven, the Son coming out of the water, and the Spirit descending, three persons simultaneously existent, yet perfectly and mysteriously united in one God. And here we see the ministry of the Son of God begin with a loud public declaration. Listen to him. See who he is. We see what God declared to be the beginning of his ministry. Friends, men would declare while he was dying on the cross, surely this man is the Son of God. And as followers of the Son of God, we follow Christ's example in baptism. 
And in fact, Jesus, by his example and his teachings, tells us what we need to know about baptism. So let's move now to ask, what is baptism? This might seem like an elementary question, but friends, it's not always simple depending on what background or tradition you may have grown up in, what church you may have been a part of. First, look at what happens with Jesus's baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Here's what we see first, that Jesus shows us that baptism is immersion in water. Baptism is immersion in water. It is being brought out, being brought under, and then he says, came out of the water. In fact, the Greek word for baptize, I'm going to put this up on the screen for you, is the word baptizo, or you might even see in the Greek baptismos. And here's what it means to immerse, to bathe, to dunk, to be wading chest deep. And this tells us, friends, that the proper way to be baptized is by immersion, not by sprinkling or pouring. And this is, is, is not just the pattern with Jesus and John the Baptist. It actually continues with the apostles. Let me show you an example in Acts chapter 8. Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then look what happens, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is the water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Notice something. So the eunuchs heard the gospel, he believed, and they're just walking by a creek. And he's like, hey, there's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? If all they needed to do was sprinkle him, you think they would have just carried a cup of water and went, done. <laughs> But they go, look, we need lots of water to do this. There's a stream. And the text is clear. They went down into it, and he came up out of it. Friends, if the early church had practiced sprinkling, none of this would have been necessary to tell us. But they practiced immersion. Jesus shows us that baptism is immersion under water. Now, the next big question people often ask when it comes to baptism is who should be baptized? Let me be clear. The New Testament teaches that baptism is for believers alone. The New Testament teaches that baptism is for believers alone. It teaches the baptism of believers alone. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus turns to his disciples, and look what he says at the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Look what he tells us there. If you read it closely, he says that only disciples of Jesus are the ones who get baptized. That the practice of the first century church was always to baptize based on someone's profession of faith. And now, you may hear from folks who practice uh, infant baptism. They'll point to passages in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts has these passages all about the households. That the households were saved and baptized. And they'll go, look, whole households were saved and baptized. And these households likely had children. Therefore, we should baptize infants of believing children. 
But the book of Acts gives us some important details about that. First, you can mark this down and look at this later if you want, but Acts chapter 16 contains two household baptisms, one of a lady named Lydia and one of the Philippian jailer. We aren't told a ton about Lydia's household, if they believed or not, but we are told that Paul preached to the whole household of the jailer and that the whole family rejoiced as he was being baptized, which seems to me to imply that was a house full of believers. Acts chapter 18 talks about an encounter with a guy named Crispus. And here's what we read about that encounter. Look at this, Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Look at it. The entire household believed. So I don't know what the age of the people were. I just know they were believers before they baptized them. Right? And many others believed and were baptized. And Paul would go on to mention in 1 Corinthians about a household that was baptized, but we aren't really given any further info. So, of the four baptism texts in the New Testament, we're told two of them believed. And I think we can make the assumption about the other two as well, that baptism is meant for disciples, for believers, not for potential believers, Let's do, let's, let me give you some big theological words you can take home and impress your family with today. There's two historic views on baptism. The first is what's called credo-baptism. Credo-baptism, the baptism of believers. Think of that word credo. That's the Latin, that comes from the Latin for creed, for belief, for confession of faith. This is baptizing someone based on their profession of faith. The other position who believes in the baptism of infants is called paedo-baptism. That comes from the Latin uh, for the word pediatrician. So the baptism of infants, the baptism of believing children. These are the two historic options. And let me say, people can disagree on this and still be Christians. But friends, this still is important about how we think about the local church and think about obeying Jesus' command. And our church would be a credo Baptist church. We baptize based on a profession of faith. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the confusion. Why have people ended up in different perspectives on this? Why have churches thought differently about this? And let me just say, there is literally probably millions of pages that theologians have written fighting about this. And so if you want any of those to read, I'll gladly uh, recommend some at some point. But let me, typically it comes down to a confusion about the relationship between baptism and circumcision. Pado baptist believe that circumcision and baptism show have a sort of one-to-one connection, that what circumcision did in the Old Testament, baptism does in the New Testament. And since circumcision was given to infants as an entrance into the people of God, so baptism is given to, to infants for the same reason. Now, Some of them are obviously going to say, well, there's obviously some differences. I don't think I need to explain this too much further, but you can only baptize a male, or you can only circumcise a male. I'm sorry, you can only circumcise a male. But these churches would baptize male and female infants of believing parents. 
these churches would also see that Israel and the church are sort of related. Just as when you read the, the Old Testament, you see how Israel has both believers and non-believers kind of intermixed in there a little bit. They'd say the church is sort of the same way and that the covenant community of God is meant to kind of have believers and non-believers in it. And so how do we think about this? How would Credo Baptist think about this? Or to ask it in an even more provocative way, why not pedo-baptism? Why not bring that in and accept that and think that that's a biblical way to be baptized as an infant? Well, first, I'd want to argue that the New Testament is not like the Old. That Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other passages promised that the church, the New Covenant, would all know the Lord, unlike those in the Old Covenant. We baptize believers alone because the New Covenant is made up of only believers The new covenant is made up of only believers. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. Jeremiah says, the the great thing about this new covenant that Jesus would bring is that everybody's going to know God. Everybody who is saved by Jesus and places their faith and is a part of this new covenant is going to know God. They're going to have a new heart. They're going to have the Holy Spirit. They're going to experience true confession. And therefore, we baptize based on a profession of faith in Christ. And think about it. A lot of these same churches, again, God love them. They're Christians. Many of them love the Lord. I benefit from much of their writings. They would only give the Lord's Supper to believers. But the Lord's Supper, it says, is the new covenant in his blood. But they're saying that infant baptism should be given because that brings them into the covenant. So if they really want to be consistent, let's be given the baby's communion. But that's not what they'll do. They'll see a difference there. And I think that is an inconsistency. We're the consistent ones to baptize into the covenant community based on faith alone and to give the communion to believers who are a part of the covenant community of faith. And then there's that whole issue of what to do about the circumcision. What do you do about the relationship between circumcision and baptism? And there is one text in the Bible that connects them. There is one But I don't think it's connected in sort of a one-to-one fashion. Circumcision on this side, baptism on this side, they're one and the same. But I think it connects them more like two signs to the same city. Look over, if you're curious about this, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Look what we read there in verse 11. In him, being in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. They go, look, the verses have baptism and circumcision, and they're in the same verse. But I don't think it's saying these things are exactly the same on both sides. But again, it's sort of like when you're driving in from Hoptown, you see the now entering Katie sign. And then when you keep going on 68, you see the now leaving Katie sign. These are two signs that are distinct, pointing toward the same reality. Baptism and circumcision are distinct signs pointing toward the same reality. Circumcision pointed forward to the new work God would do on the heart through Christ, to this circumcision of Christ, not made with hands. This is what Jeremiah 31 was promising. And baptism points back toward the same reality. We were once dead, but now we're alive. So circumcision is sort of the you're now entering Sign. It's this sort of pointing toward the city that's coming, this reality that's coming. And baptism is pointing back toward this reality that has come. They're distinct and unique with their functions and purposes, even though they point toward the same city. So it is with circumcision and baptism. One points forward and the other points back. Baptism is meant for believers in Jesus Christ alone, not for infants, and certainly not for those who don't profess faith in Jesus. And again, there's a lot more you can read on that topic if you're curious. You'd be surprised how heated some of those uh, fine theological debates uh, can get. But let's finish by considering the purpose of baptism. I've given you sort of a, a survey of the Old Testament the baptism of Jesus and what the New Testament has to say. What is baptism? Let's consider now the purpose. Why do it? What does it mean? Of course, Jesus and the apostles told us to do it, but what does baptism do? Let's look first. Baptism is a commitment to God and his people. Baptism is a commitment to God and his people. I want you to look back at 1 Peter 3 which talks about the connection between the flood and baptism. And Peter uses some language here that really rubs people kind of the wrong way, but I think he's pretty clear as to what he's saying. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, this is the flood in the context, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. It says, hey, baptism saves you not in the sense that it wipes away your sins, not in the sense that it is it, it doesn't do what the blood of Jesus does, but the commitment you make behind it is an act of faith. It's an appeal to God. It's an oath. It's a commitment for good conscience to follow Jesus as Lord of your life. It's the personal commitment, the public personal commitment made by a Christian declaring that Jesus is Savior and Lord and committing to follow him all the days of their life. 
Friends, it's a big deal. And the faith that's meant to be displayed in it, that is what saves the appeal to God for a good conscience. And that's why here we make sure that those who are baptized here understand what that commitment means. And friends, if you ever go to a church that's real quick to baptize, even somebody who doesn't really understand what the gospel is, that's a sign you need to run far away from that church because, friends, they don't understand the weightiness and the heaviness of these things. Baptism is sort of like a wedding ceremony. You can go get married and elope if you want. That's okay. But the purpose of the big ceremony, I don't know if people realize this, but the big ceremony isn't just to spend a bunch of the dad's money. And it isn't just to impress a bunch of people that really you'll never talk to again. That's not what it's about. The wedding ceremony is to make a public commitment to be remembered and reflected on. That's the point. You have all these people here as witnesses. You've got your best friends there beside you. And and rushing someone to baptism is sort of like rushing them to be married. Hey, I know you met her online last week. Let's get you hitched. (laughs) We wouldn't do that. And yet we would rush to make sure that they're that they do this baptism thing. Maybe we want to brag about it. Maybe, maybe leaders are concerned about numbers, but we want to make sure people understand this commitment. And this is why we baptize together with the people of God, because they're making a commitment to God, but they're also making a commitment to you, that they're going to follow Jesus all the days of their life, and that has implications for how they live with us with other people around them, like the wedding attendees serve as witnesses, so you have a role when someone's baptized here. You are witnesses to that. I know most of us just go to the weddings for the food and because we don't want to offend somebody, but friends, there's a real sort of accountability that's meant to be there, and so it is with baptism. This tells us, second, that baptism is the first step of Christian discipleship. Baptism is the first step of Christian discipleship. Notice the first thing that Jesus told us to do with the Great Commission after going and these people believing was baptizing. Look again, Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, we go with the gospel, and when someone believes, they're baptized, and then we begin teaching them all that Jesus commanded. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the first thing new believers did was to be baptized, So he's telling us, in a sense, someone hasn't truly started as a disciple until they've been baptized. Think about it sort of like a driver's license of the Christian life. They might be able to sort of drive the car a little bit, but they're not doing it legit and legally without their parents there until they get get the license, right? And just like the driver's license, friends, there's some of us that spend a long time of our life with just a permit, walking around going, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But they've never even taken the first step. And this may be, there may be time, there may be times where it's necessary to delay baptism for a time. But believers should not be unbaptized longer than is necessary because by doing so, we delay discipleship longer than necessary. 
Baptism is a commitment to God and His people. It's the first step of Christian discipleship. Third, baptism is the front door to church membership. It's the front door to church membership. This might be a little controversial to some, but that's okay. The Bible is very clear that that baptism is a church ordinance. It's a church practice. And what this, what, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean you have to be dunked underwater in a certain building that they call a church in order for it to count. But it does mean that baptism is meant to bring you into a local faith family. With the wedding analogy again. You don't got to get married at grandma's farm for the wedding to count. But at the end of the wedding, you're married into grandma's family one way or another. <laughs> And he's to say, baptism is something that brings you into a local community of faith. Let's look at one text that makes this connection. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 42. Look at this and look carefully. So those who received his word, this is Peter preaching, they were then baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, those who were just baptized, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Notice, right on the heels of being baptized, they begin doing what the churches do. They fellowship. They break bread, which is possibly a reference to the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves together. They added to the number of their local body. And if it seemed in the early church, this isn't something where every single local church you join, you need to be baptized again. But it's sort of going, hey, if you were baptized into a local body and we recognize, if we're like-minded on what baptism is and does, then you're free to come and join with other churches that feel the same way about these things. It tells us that this is the way that we sort of enter into the community of faith. Baptism is a one-time act of immersion into water, and it's meant to be a commitment to God and to his people. It's meant to be the first step of Christian discipleship, and it is the front door to membership in a local church. Let me close by having you consider this. Can you be a Christian and not be baptized Well, sure, the thief on the cross, right? He got to go to heaven, and he didn't know what baptism is. But can you be a healthy disciple of Jesus without baptism? I think the Bible would say no. So, like, can you have a healthy marriage without the big ceremony? Sure, but is it really healthy to have a marriage where you're isolated from other people that are around you that have committed to walk alongside you? If you've not been baptized by immersion after becoming a believer, the Bible would ask you to consider, why not? He's saying you're sort of just dating Christ in the church, but you're delaying real commitment and marriage to them, a real connection to them. And if you want to explore baptism in the next steps, I'd invite you to talk to me or one of the elders, and we would love to talk about this further because this is so important. Because friends, your Christian life isn't simply about you getting to heaven, but it's about you living like God calls you to live between the moment you're saved and when you get to heaven. If you have been baptized biblically, let me ask you to consider this. How often do you think about your baptism? You don't have to know, you don't have to remember every detail. You don't have to remember exactly what you were wearing or what you were thinking, but does the reality of what baptism means ever cross your mind? Do you ever sort of look at the jersey when you get discouraged? 
and think about and try to be encouraged about what team you're on. It's, incur- it's, it's uh, common in parts of the Christian world to say, remember your baptism. Something that's very hard to do if you're baptized as an infant, right? You can't really remember that. Or, or if you're baptized as an unbeliever when it happens. But it's telling us to remember your baptism and the commitment you made in the same way spouses, when the marriage gets tough, you think about the wedding day, don't you? You think about the commitment and the vows you made there in sickness and in health. You may not remember every person that was there at the wedding. You may not remember exactly what was going on or how the food tasted or every little detail. But you can look back and remember the commitment you made. The commitment to Christ and the commitment to his people. So I'd invite you that if you haven't thought about that believer, if you've been baptized, think and remember your baptism. Think about it every once in a while to be encouraged in your walk of faith. And finally, we'll close here. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. That's what you got to take away from this. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. Just like the people went through the flood and came out the other side, so we go under the water and out to newness of life. The people were taken through the Red Sea and onto the other side. So again, we're taken through the water And up to the other side, the priests were washed in order to anoint them for their service. Friends, we are in baptism in one sense, anointed and set apart for service in a local body. We are immersed into the waters of death, and we rise again to new and glorious life. Here's how Romans 6 puts it. I love this. Paul says this, Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death, burial, resurrection. This is what the gospel is all about. This is what baptism is meant to symbolize. It's meant to say, hey, I am putting all my chips in on Jesus. I'm confessing exactly what we sang before we started the sermon, that nothing can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, to live a perfect life you and I could never live, and to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again from the dead, so that in him, through faith, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be in perfect, restored, right relationship with God. And friends, maybe your first step today isn't baptism. Maybe your first step is to come to Jesus and to experience new life in him that baptism is meant to point us toward. We've taken a deep dive on baptism this morning. And now the question for you is this. Will you dive into the deep end with Jesus? Let's stand and let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we think about baptism, we don't often give some of these things much thought. We don't think of them as all that important or life-altering or anything like that. But, Lord, you've given us the practice of baptism as an important reminder of uh, who you are, of what you've done, and of your goodness and kindness toward us. So, Lord, I ask that as Christians we would remember our baptism 
He would cause us to think about these things and to be encouraged by them. I pray that if there's someone today who doesn't know you, that they would see the offer of new life, of death, burial, and resurrection as something that can be available to them. And they take the step, not only of faith to believe in you, but baptism to commit to you and to your people. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that's said and done. And whatever responses we need to make, whether we need to come forward and pray, whether we need to talk to somebody, whether we just need to write where we are, make personal commitments to you, that we would do it as we remember our baptism and as we worship and sing to you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. righteousness on our behalf. Before we go, a couple quick things. First, sort of on uh, the rumor front, me and uh, the leadership wanted to just share with you all, we know we live in a small town, that there have uh, been some parties interested and have, and have approached our leadership, uh, interested in purchasing some of our uh, church land. And we wanted to make sure you heard it from leadership first and not second or third hand. We have had some parties approach us, but... There's been no offers that have been officially made and no offers are being considered. So we just wanted to make sure you heard it from us first that nothing's being considered, no offers have been extended, and leadership will update you if anything changes on that front. Just as a reminder, we've got giving in the back. We've got some nice young ladies there taking the church offering, and Dennis is back there. Also, if you want to give toward Ed Mean, there's two separate baskets, and they're labeled. So check the label, uh, depending on which uh, one that you're giving toward. And we close and go out into the world today to serve God, and we uh, dismiss with a benediction from God's Word. This from 2 Timothy 4, 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.